okay. If you're a journalist who uses the tool Help a Reporter Out, or Harrow, listen up. Harrow is moving to Cision's new app, Connectively. But what is Connectively? Well, imagine a place where you can quickly connect with expert sources for your next story. Connectively is a new app from Cision that's changing the way journalists like us, content creators, experts and PRs work together. So if you're in search of credible sources, Connectively is your next stop. With just a click, you can publish your queries. These go straight to a feed where experts from loads of different backgrounds can respond, giving you their expertise. So go on, visit connectively.us to sign up for free. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-V-E-L-Y dot U-S. Connectively.us. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor and I'm Emma Wilkinson. Welcome back everyone. We're ploughing through series 11 of the podcast and each week we're discussing an issue affecting freelance journalists and chatting through the problems and solutions with the help of two experienced guests. We're also continuing our little experiment with YouTube so hi everyone. Um, don't know how this is going to go, but uh, for once we've had to uh, get out of our pyjamas for these performances and look a little bit presentable. Yes, in fact, if you do want to go and watch this episode on YouTube, if you're not already, Lily and I have seemed to have dressed the same today, so that's just a little little Easter egg for you. Um, today we are going to talk about long reads. What is a long read? How do you pitch one? And importantly, how do you go about writing one? Yes, so we're going to bring in our guests in a minute. But as always, we like to start with a positive note with our freelance win of the week. So over to you, Emma, what's yours? Yeah, so after a rocky few weeks getting back to work after the, or getting back to full work after the summer holidays, um, I finally got on top of all my work and deadlines and I'm completely up to date and in control rather than just like that panicky feeling of how am I possibly going to get all these things done at the same time. So it's a very good feeling. And on Friday, I just totally shut down my computer, knowing that I was done for the week and everything was ticked off. So I'm going to say, let's hope it stays that way. We all know from experience and how I've talked about this before that it isn't likely to stay that way, but long may it last. Yes. Yeah. You were quite stressed out those first couple of weeks, but <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. And <laughs> um, yeah. So what's your, what's your freelance win, really? So mine has been a bit of a, a faff to begin with. Um, but, but I think it's all turned out in the end. Um, so I've been sent an electronic bike to test out um, for an article, but there's been a few hiccups along the way. Um, it was delayed getting to me and then it came without any pedals. Uh, so I had to quickly get some pedals for it. They didn't send me the tools that were meant to come with it. So my husband's had to take it to his workshop to get the pedals fitted. Hopefully now, though, they're all fitted, so I'm going to um, start testing it now, and I'm quite excited. I've got my running group tonight that I coach, and I'm going to get them to do hill reps, and I'm going to whiz up and down on my electric bike, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> They'll probably be cursing at me. But yeah, so having my electric bike to test is my little kind of pickup this week. And let's hope those pedals don't fall off when yeah. you're while you're going up and down that hill or there'll be something interesting to write about yeah it's true it's true 
Okay, it's time to introduce our guests for this episode. First up, we have Samira Shackle, a freelance journalist, editor and author based in London. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian Long Read and her first book, Karachi Vice, weaves the tale of five residents of uh, the Pakistani city. Yes, and we also have with us Oliver Franklin Wallace, features editor at GQ, who has also written for Guardian, Wired and many more. His first book, Wasteland, on the dirty truth about what we throw away, was published this summer. So, Samira, my first question to you is, how would you define a long read? So Lily and I were talking about this because we've both done really lengthy features, like, you know, multi-page, 3,000 word, but we wouldn't necessarily put them in this category because of kind of how they were presented and broken up, perhaps with lots of fat boxes and things. Um, so what what would be your definition of a, of a long read? Is it, is it more than just word count? Yeah, I think word count is definitely a part of it, obviously, uh, clues in the name. But the, so I think that the pieces um, for Guardian Long Read, for instance, are typically around 5,000, give or take a bit, but it's, it's longer than your, than like even a, a long newspaper magazine feature. Um, but then on top of that, I think you're absolutely right. I would um, say it's not just a, a sort of regular feature that's extra long. I think the key thing is having some sort of narrative element. Um, and so the, the most kind of obvious form of that is a story that has a beginning, middle and end. So it's, it's, it's just, you might cover the same, you know, it, it, you wouldn't be coming at it from a theme. You're coming at it from a story, really, where you're maybe following a particular person or a particular set of events along a timeline. Um, or it might be um, that it's a sort of argumentative thread that links together different things. But but I think the main point is you have um, maybe even sometimes borrowing devices from drama or fiction, but where you're sort of you're ending up in a different place from where you started and you're focusing on on sort of specific stories rather than themes. And so it's just a slightly different way of, of coming at it. And I think that's how you justify the length and how you sustain interest over that kind of length. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I never really thought about it like that in terms of the narrative structure. Um, I mean, Oliver, could we bring you in here? Because I wonder, do you think there are certain topics or issues um, that suit a long read? And do you tend to look for more evergreen content? Well, um, the subject matter, I always, I always kind of say to writers when they're pitching or we're talking about ideas that the ideal... Um, the ideal pitch for a for a long read can be some best summed up with two words, which is it's complicated. Like I, th- I think if you can tell the story to someone in one sentence, uh, then that's probably better off as a one sentence story. And and the majority of pitches that we turn down, for example, when people pitch subject matters, you know, rather than a narrative, as Samira said, you know, beginning, middle, end. The thing that I think really excites me and elevates. Um, stories into something that I'm kind of excited to read is is that you kind of we talk about two different strands to to long features that make them stand up. One is narrative, you know, big, middle, and end, and we talk about you know quite often you use screenwriting devices, so we talk about scenes, for example, scenes and twists and all the things that you would recognise from from traditional storytelling. The second thing that I think is really important and is under talked about and underappreciated is is theme or the argument that that you know I, I quite often talk about with writers that when you're when you're reading a any kind of long story you've got a kind of narrative this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and then you've got a parallel structure which is this is why this is important pointing at a deeper theme and all of the great magazine stories for me kind of work on those two 
two levels, they tell us something more profound about what it means to be alive. Um, so yeah, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. And just this morning, actually, I was reading a, a long read in a local uh, newsletter we have here in a local publication we have here in Sheffield about the Leadmill nightclub. That there's a big been a big row going on, and um, but. I'd kind of seen it on social media and hadn't really understood what this was about. And it is one of those where you could only tell that story in a long read because it goes back to how the nightclub was set up and what it was intended to do in the first place and all these characters that had come in mm-hmm. all the way along and why there isn't a bad side and a good side, but there's just people wanting to do different things. And yeah, I think sometimes there are stories where actually you can only really tell it in in this kind of format. And um, Samira, when it comes to pitching, when you've had an idea, is there anything different about how you would pitch a long read? You know, how much detail would you provide from the the start about what it will be? Kind of how much research do you do? Does that differ from sort of a standard feature? I think it differs a lot in how you frame it. So, um, you know, taking what you just said, whereas you might be able to say um, for a regular type of feature, oh, there's been, you know, there's something interesting going on at this um at this nightclub or I want to write about Sheffield's nightclubs etc but what for the pitching along read I think you'd really need to say um you know these are the key people who are involved um there's been this point of conflict and this is why you know you, you kind of have to justify the length and I think you want to go in with a sense if not every detail I think you want to go in with a sense of what the story is rather than just the theme so it's not just you know a kind of piece about Sheffield's nightclub scene or or one particular profile of one particular nightclub it's about um you know the the dispute I'm saying this obviously without having no idea about the story you're talking about just if it's a hypothetical but the you know but you're, you're saying you know these are the kind of characters and this is how their personality clash led to this bigger thing which is symbolic of xyz and so you kind of want some sense um of what it is that you'll be reading which it, which will always be much more than the theme so it's kind of going in with that um that sense of what the actual story is not what the subject of the piece is because obviously every piece has a subject matter but the the with the long forms I think that's the biggest sort of it's somehow quite hard to get your head around I definitely found that when I started doing long reads uh so like oh well I want to do a piece about this and obviously I'll find the story once I start doing it but actually I think you really need to have a sense um an editor needs to have a sense of what it is that you're going to be telling and why it will be interesting over that length because not everything is interesting over that length uh, and as Oli, as Oliver says you want to be able to um to to sort of tell step back and tell certain things in a different way so when he talks about scenes you know that's sort of describing events in slightly more granular detail um and it's all of those things that sort of texture of um of, of the storytelling that, that I think make, justifies the length and makes it makes it sort of need to be that long. But you need to not have every element of it pinned down for a pitch, but I think a bit more than you would otherwise. You need to have a sense of who the people are and what the specifics are of what you'll be telling. Yeah. And I know, but when it comes to the actual pitch, though, if someone's pitching to you and it's there in front of you, what are you expecting to see in that pitch and kind of how long are you expecting that pitch to be? I try not to be too prescriptive, to be honest, because I don't think it's it's necessarily helpful. It, often people have the germ of an idea that's, uh, but but maybe don't have the confidence to pitch it. So uh, the way that I've always pitched, you know, when as as a freelancer myself over the last few years before I kind of came back to DQ, is always kind of think about trying to do three things. The first thing 
which every piece should do, every um, pitch should do that no one really talks about is that you should show people that you can write. You know, like if you if you can write a compelling pitch as 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 compelling as you would the first you know paragraph of your story, then you're immediately going to hook any editor into it. I get you know dozens of pitches a week. You know that that to me immediately makes you stand out from the crowd. So there's there's that one thing. The second thing is what Samira was just talking about, which is convincing me of the depth of the story. Um, and the th the third, which a lot of people kind of overlook is the practical stuff. It's like, okay, well, have you spoken to the characters that you want to write about? Have they agreed to speak to you? Where are you going to go? How much is it going to cost? Those kind of things which kind of show that you show me that you have some understanding of what's involved. You know, if you're going to pitch me a story about a cross-country race in Mongolia, my first question is going to be how much is it going to cost to go to Mongolia? So, if you do that at the pitch in you know, level at the at the outset it's going to save everybody involved in a lot a lot of um, a lot of time so those kind of three three things um that i think about that said i've i've commissioned stuff that have started with a with a one-line email and i've commissioned things where people have written 1200 words of the most deeply reported and they've already done 20 interviews so it, it really does vary I was going to, yeah, just to add to that, I would, um, I think especially when you have um, some relationship with an editor, um, with editors I work with regularly, I will quite often, um, you know, say, oh, what about this thing? And it might just be, as uh, as he says, one sentence or something. Um, uh, and then you can sort of work together on what, have a bit of a back and forth about what it might need. Uh, I think that can be a bit harder when you don't have any pre-existing relationship at all. And it might be a pre-existing relationship where you've written for that editor, but you've not done long reads. And so, you know, they're sort of confident in your abilities. But I think um, that can be really helpful. Um, but in my experience, although you do need more for um, a long read pitch than you might for for another, um, for a sort of normal feature pitch. Um, and I found that quite frustrating when I started doing long reads. In my experience since then, most editors, if you if you present a sort of well thought out pitch that shows you have seriously thought about it, they won't expect you to have done all the pre-reporting or whatever. Um, they might come back and say, this sounds really interesting, but it would need these elements to make it work. Or have you scoped out access and could you go and do that? And, and for me anyway, it sort of feels easier to justify taking that time to then go and actually make some calls once you've once you've got a little bit of interest or an indication that someone might be interested. Um, I'm sure, you know, you were talking at the beginning about how busy you can get as a freelancer. It can be quite hard to justify like, oh, I'm going to make a load of calls for something that I don't know if it's if it's going to come off. Um, but I think doing that little bit of, of legwork and making sure it's well written and well thought through uh, enough that, that an editor will feel confident to come back and say, yeah, in principle, this sounds interesting, but we might need these things to make it work. And then doing that legwork for me anyway, that's felt a bit more a bit more bearable to do. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it's that, I mean, that's just really similar to pitching, you know, when yeah. you're starting out pitching and you have to send because they don't know who you are. And so exactly. you're having to like prove yourself. Mm. Whereas I have so many editors now, I just send like a single, yeah. do you want to be <laughs> on this? And they're like, yes, or okay. no. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Or then, like you say, that starts the conversation. So it's, it's good to hear that it's the same when you're doing these longer pieces. And um, I mean, Samira, let's move on to the actual writing of it because I think when, when you've read a perfectly crafted long read, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm kind of immediately going, 
I would love to like write something like that. I wonder what that process looked like. You know, was it more in depth? How do you know when you've got that kind of blank document in front of you where to start when you've done all this reporting and masses of interviews? Um, do you have any kind of advice or tips for for getting that writing process going? Yeah, um, I will say that it's always like absolutely hellish, and I say that as somebody who generally loves writing and finds it quite satisfying. But uh, I think that uh, I have a natural tendency to to sort of over research and over report, and I think that's very easy to do when you're doing long reads because I've always got this fear that like well, I've got I, you know it's got to be really in depth and and. Uh, detailed and you know I've got to make sure I have enough and I always think I don't have enough until the point that it comes to write at which point I'm like why have I got like 25 hours of audio or whatever <laughs> to, to sit down and deal with but I think that um, the thing that I find most useful in terms of the writing process is um Firstly, actually, something that's more to do with the research, and this was really highlighted to me recently because I've just had a period of being very um, sort of swamped with too many things on, and so I wasn't doing this, and it highlighted to me why it's very important, which is just um, sort of keeping really clear notes as you go along on all your interviews, and even if you're not having time to transcribe things as you go, just making notes about your observations of people and places and so on um, as you go along, because the nature of these pieces is they're often taking months to do, which is maybe something we can talk about as well, that it's it's over a long time period. You're gener generally speaking, not turning these around in a couple of weeks. So you're doing it in and around other work as well. Um, and so having that <clears throat> that sort of record of, of what you've what your observations have been as you go, I find extremely helpful when it comes to writing because it's not fresh in your mind. So for a piece, you know, having not done this recently, I found myself in a position of being like, how do I sum up these people who I interviewed, you know, like six weeks ago and how do I describe them visually in a way that makes them vivid to the writer? Oh, it's very difficult to do. Like he was nice. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would have had you know something much, much better had I been keeping those notes. So that's really helpful. The other thing I think um, that I always try to do um, is just to, to make a sort of quite clear plan for what you're doing to marshal the information. And so um, the way I do that with a Guardian piece, for instance, is they usually structure pieces in five sections. Um, and that's quite a useful, it's not always rigid, but it's quite a useful way of um, thinking about if you know you've got to split it roughly into five sections and each one needs to sort of progress the story a bit. It's a bit like a five act structure for, for script writing. Oliver was saying earlier about borrowing some devices from screenwriting. And so for me, something about just knowing, okay, I've got these five sections, I've got an intro and a conclusion, and then three sections in the middle where the drama needs to sort of play out, uh, that I find quite useful. And I'll sort of do quite detailed bullet points, often send that to my editor to read and, and just see if that's on on the right track and then go off and, and write it from that. Um, so those are my two tips for writing. And then also just the, I mean, I'm sure we'll come on to this, but the editing process for long reads in my experience is genuine, generally speaking, much more intensive than for other um, types of features, which means that uh, you have a chance to, to sort of really polish it and get other input. It's definitely of all the work I've done, it's the work that has the, the most sort of input from, from editors in, in really crafting what the final form of it is. Yeah, and I wonder, Oliver, if we bring you back in here, I was just about to ask about that, actually, the, the kind of editing process then. Hmm. Is that much more involved than, say, kind of your standard feature and, and, and how does that work? Is there a lot more back and forth? Yeah, I mean, uh, it will depend on the story and the and the writer, but 
just in the same way that there's a lot more reporting done in the long reads like quite often by the very nature you're dealing with a, a multi-stage process so the way it tends to work is that you know i love samira that they're mentioning that you know that relationship with the right with, with the with the writer and the between the writer and the editor during the reporting phase because i think that quite often prevents a load of work having to do later on if you're thinking about structure and talking i'll quite often say to a writer okay how's it going you know what have you been finding out and you know anything that stood out to you so far and they'll say oh i have this amazing scene with this criminal in a courtroom and da, 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 da. and and they're like okay great and it kind of gives you a sense so people will, will quite often tell you over the phone what they're most excited about and then two months later they'll file a draft and it won't be in there and i'll be like have you forgotten about this and genuinely they'll be like oh my god i totally forgot that happened <laughs> and so it's quite a quite a nice thing to be able to do um generally speaking i kind of think about editing in three stages the first is a kind of very top level like i'll just send back my first impressions and maybe some structural notes which will maybe be like okay the beginning isn't as gripping as it could be is there any alternatives you know from that scene or something that's kind of a first level edit the second one is much more rigorous, like a line edit, talking about word choices and structure, making sure everything's there kind of grammatically and stuff. And then the last kind of, the very last stage would be an edit, which we do in concert with fact checkers. So that's just to like make sure that everything's stood up and we've got right of reply and kind of tidying everything up towards the end. So I kind of think about it in those three phases. Sometimes stories will, t I'm working on a story at the moment that we're on version five. So like, you know, sometimes it takes a long, long time. Sometimes it takes less time. Uh, um, but I think the, the crucial thing for me is trying to like explain why in, you know, the changes need to be made or edits are being made. And also like trying to make sure that the writer feels that they have opportunities to like express themselves and, and insert their own style on things. I think a lot I've had situations myself over the years writing for different publications where you kind of do all this work and then you kind of things go through the machine and then everything kind of comes out coming sounding quite the same at the other end and for me part of the, the joy of wanting to be freelance is that opportunity to express oneself so the nice thing about being in gq is that we kind of have a style which lets people you know express themselves a bit more so i try and at the, at the moment one of the things i'm trying to focus on is let people do that and take risks stylistically and things that that makes the piece feel their own if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, like you say, it, it's kind of a team effort, not the editor completely <laughs> rewriting everything that you've done. It's that kind of collaboration that gets everybody to a to an end point. And I think, especially with something that's as, as big as this, right, you can, I imagine you get to the stage where you can't see the wood for the trees as the writer because you've just been too involved in it. And it's actually really helpful to have that second, third pair of eyes from somebody throwing ideas in and yeah, yeah. so um absolutely i mean one thing that um lily and i immediately thought because not that we're obsessed with money but you know these are the questions we always get asked is how does payment for long read work because i've had kind of worked on investigations where you get a day rate because you don't know how long it's going to take you even though there's only a thousand words at the end so you know there's all this work that goes into it in editing rounds Samira, does is that kind of reflected in the in the rate, or is there a different way of of working out payment? Yeah, so generally speaking, yes, it will be a higher rate, um, like either a word rate or a project fee, than for uh, another kind of feature, which I think is fair given the extra work. 
um, I do think one of the, the sort of structural problems with this um, work is that it, typically you are just paid in the same way that you're paid for any other feature, which is once it's published. And I think that can be a real problem if you're if you're maybe spending six months working on something instead of, you know, a month or two weeks or whatever. Um, and that can create a real kind of hole in your finances. And that's why I think um, what I mentioned earlier about sort of, you know, something that you're doing alongside other types of work. So, for instance, when I started doing long reads more, I had a part-time editing job. And so I had that sort of regular income coming in. Um, you could be balancing it with doing shorter pieces or shifts or whatever. But I do think uh, for that reason, it's quite difficult to to sort of, it's quite difficult as a predictable income stream because it might be a bigger paycheck when it does come, but you might, it's very unpredictable how long it will take because by its nature, as we're talking, you know, with in-depth reporting that can take months to do. The editing process can be done within a few weeks. It can take months. Um, it's probably not a very time sensitive story because again, that's the nature of the beast. Um, and so all of those things I think can make financial planning a bit difficult. And um, there are other ways, I mean, like, you mentioned I, I, I write regularly for the long read now, so I have a contract, so I get it get like a monthly fee to cover doing a couple of piece, a few pieces a year, uh, and that's made it much easier for me. But obviously, there's a really limited number of of that that kind of arrangement um, available in the UK. I think it's sometimes in the US. I've heard um, US journalists talk about the fact that where it's this this form of journalism is much more established. You might get part of the fee on first draft, for instance, as in the same way that you might with a book proposal, which does seem to me a bit more fair, but I think it's just not, there aren't that many publications doing it in the UK and it's just not that well established. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an issue. And how does it work at GQ? Because you also mentioned expenses. So mm. how do, how would that work then with, with the writer if, you know, you, you've got a certain budget for the, the words and a certain budget for expenses? Yeah, so it tends, as, as Samira said, it tends to work in a similar way to other stories, um, to be honest, in that, you know, you're paid on um, completion. What I would say is, is, like, with expenses, because quite often these stories can be very expensive to report, um, I always try and make sure that the writer's kind of not putting themselves out of pocket. So if there's travelling or significant expenses, fees, if they need court cool documents or whatever, like, I'll make sure that we're paying that for them. The worst thing... the worst, I remember as a freelancer that feeling of like being overstretched and having to spend you know, sometimes hundreds of pounds of your own money. I once flew to the flew to Germany for the Times and had to do it on my own money at a time, and I think I genuinely went into my overdraft. And um, so I try and avoid that. Um, but yeah, I, I think as as Samira said, it's very unusual. I quite often get young journalists and and other people in the trade being like talking about how great it would be to write for the New Yorker or talking about certain long-form writers that they love. And almost all of those people are on staff contracts or retainers somewhere. Like there, there are the idea that you can make money just doing this. And trust me, I've tried. I've tried, tried for like five years to just to just make enough money doing this stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I will be very upfront uh, with the people. And the reality is that in the US, which has a, a much, much larger media ecosystem and much more robust rates, uh, rates can be two to four times higher. So the last two years of freelancing, I was doing two to three US pieces a year, and that that would be like seventy percent of my income as a total. So, um, but it's not always you know it, it's kind of you need to spend a couple of years 
building that ground loading before you quite often will be taken seriously over there. So it's a it's a challenging thing to get your foot on the ladder for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you both actually about this difference between the sort of US and where long reads seem much more kind of established and there's many more uh, kind of places that you could potentially hitch a long read. And do you think, why Why do you think, is it to, just to do with that media, media ecosystem, Oliver? Why do you think it is that the UK perhaps doesn't have as many opportunities for those who want to write long reads? I think it, it's quite, you know, the US readership is five times, you know, the domestic readership is five times higher than, than ours. So a rate five times the size makes kind of makes sense at that point. You know what I mean? The advertising market is that much larger. Um, so I don't think it's particularly surprising. I, it's always fascinating to me. There's a piece in Press Gazette not that long ago when someone, some editor was like trying to make out like that British people don't have a temperament to read long reads, and which I kind of laughed at because actually, if you look at the data, like if you saw our data versus, and I get to see the American Colonist titles, like per capita, the actual opposite is, is, is true. And we have probably more readers for our long features per capita than a lot of the big US titles do. So the idea that uh, it, it's some kind of weird thing about the British psyche or, or you know, a Fleet Street or something, it's just nonsense. The reality is it's just expensive to do in my in, in my opinion um and the skill sets you know the number of people who do this at a very high level in this country is quite small the number of publications you could probably count on one hand um so it's it's unfortunately over the course of my career become some, something to give a niche uh, which is a shame because actually when you look at what drives people to pay for subscriptions what produces documentary series and podcasts and spin-offs and all these other kind of ancillary um kind of benefits it's almost always the long features so it's it's kind of slightly backwards and any, anyone out there who has a fix for it please let me know in the comments yeah <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned the spin-offs because there's so many podcasts that i've listened to that have started off as a long read particularly not just american but a lot of the what? American stories. Often not written by the person. Like, there's a lot of predatory ripoffs podcasts yeah, where people yeah. will, like read a long read and then bastardize it into sorry, into their own. Uh, into yeah, their own and then it ends up as a Netflix series. Yeah, exactly. There seems to be that cycle. Um, and but I guess the other thing um, that we've not really touched on is that that also long reads can be then used um, for for information for books as well it might be like the starting point of a topic um and i just wondered kind of how do you know when a a long read might become something else whether that is a book or or perhaps a podcast series or or some other um content um samira you know could you tell us a bit more about that side of things yeah um so my book did grow out of of two long reads that i did actually um and I think in answer to your question about when you know it might be something more, I think it's it's probably the same as with, with you know, at any point when you know it might be more is when you feel it's not fully been um, explored or like you have more to say on something or more to uncover about something. But where I think um, a long doing a long read is really helpful for the book process is that doing a book proposal is sort of like you know what we've just been discussing about writing a, a long read pitch and how it's much more work than a regular pitch or it can be much more work I feel like a, a book proposal is that times 10 and that you have to produce this document of you know maybe 30,000 words with a sample chapter and a 
planned out structure of how the whole book's going to work and what's going to be in each chapter. And you're doing that with absolutely no guarantee that anyone's going to buy it. And it can take a really long time and require a lot of research. And if you've done um, the sort of depth of reporting that, that you need to do for a long read, that gives you a real jump start on on getting the material that you might need for the book proposal. And you'll, you might need more and you'd certainly need more for the actual book, but I think it can really give you a, a lot of those foundations for the proposal. And that's that's very appealing, I think, to to have already done some of the work and already be quite immersed in it. And, and frankly, in a, in a way that you've been paid for, you've got the paycheck from the long read and that gives you a sort of starting point because, you know, it's difficult to take out the, the that's partly why it took me a really long time to do my book proposal because it was just quite difficult to to justify like taking lots of time where I wasn't being paid to produce something that I might never get paid for you know it's sort of not to put too fine a point on it but it's just it can it's quite a, it's just a logistical challenge isn't it when you've got other things to do that are going to pay your bills um so I think that that's really really helpful just the um you've already had time and space to to think about something in detail and crucially to have done reporting um if you're thinking about pitching a non-fiction a non-fiction book that will need reporting yeah and that's a way to use your work like yeah. Oliver you were saying about kind of others coming in and kind of stealing stealing your idea and making all the you know podcasts and documentaries etc off the back of something you'd written I suppose yeah, that book idea it's sorry yeah, no, go on, Oliver, yeah. No, I just going to say, it's, it's kind of, it's funny. Obviously, uh, almost always as journalists and as non-fiction writers, uh, you're writing about things where you don't own anything, like you're not creating, you're just kind of presenting your own, uh, you know, what you found on something that's happened in, in the public eye. Uh, yeah, I did um, some filming recently for a documentary based on a story that I'd done back in 2020 for, for GQ. And it was kind of surreal going back and um you know looking at all my notes and stuff from a story that i did three years ago which had kind of kept on rolling and one of the one of the producers asked me a question on camera about something and they basically quoted a line from my own story back to me and i was like that is a, that that is the opening line to my that, 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 that's not your observation that's the opening line to my piece and they're like oh is it and then they're kind of looking through their notes and it's that kind of weird thing of like these things then live on in other forms but you do you don't ever you know, oh, it's, it's, it's nothing proprietary most of the time. So you kind of end up in this weird ecosystem where quite often you only take, uh, you know, one one point of view on it. The the, the most kind of nerve-wracking experience or some of the most nerve-wracking experiences of journalists is when I've been on an assignment knowing that other magazines have been doing the exact same story at the same time, mm. um, which, is, which is always fun to see how different writers kind of approach the same subject. Yeah. Well, I'm impressed you could you could remember that that was the first line of your your piece as well because I find that if I read something, it's almost like I move on to the next thing. I completely forget what's gone before. Um, so that, that I'm, I'm very impressed. It's an unhealthy amount of time spent on writing opening lines. To be honest, I'm a very very slow writer. So. Great. Well, I think that's probably a, a really good point to to wrap up. That's been really, really helpful, actually, and, and I've taken loads away from that. So thank you both very much. Um, but just before we sign off, um, what we like to do is is get a recommendation from our guests. Um, so we're going to ask you for a recommendation of a piece of work by a freelance journalist. So Samira, can we come to you first? 
Yeah, uh, I'm going to recommend a piece that a colleague at the Guardian Longread wrote, who's also, also a freelancer, Sophie Elmhurst, recently about um, Jurex, the condom brand. Um, and it's just it's just a really brilliant piece. Uh, I think partly it's a good illustration of, of what we were just talking about, subject matter and a, and a story, because it's got this subject matter, which is, you know, condoms which is quite broad, but then you read it and it's actually this very specific story about one person who uh, works at Jurex and is kind of trying to figure out how to market condoms in a way that's appealing. And he's this big character who's completely passionate about his job. And it takes you into this whole surreal world of sort of manufacturing and, and marketing condoms. And it's incredibly engaging and you sort of don't notice the, the 5,000 words slipping by. So strong recommendation for that. No, fantastic. That sounds a bit that I haven't I haven't read that. So we're absolutely gonna go away and read that now. And we'll put all the links <laughs> to the recommendations in our show notes so you can all go and uh, have a look. And uh yeah, Oliver, what's what would be your recommendation? I, I was going to second that. Uh, a, a good rule uh, for all for like all British journalists who want to study long form is just go and read everything Sophie Elmhurst has ever written because she's like incredible. Um and one of the one of the strange quirks of of British journalism at being such a small world is that I'm actually going to recommend a piece by her partner Tom Lamont, who is also another long form writer. Um, and Tom is is another one who writes the most wonderful, um, kind of almost poetic investigative pieces uh, for the Guardian Longread and elsewhere. But he just did a piece for USGQ um, about the German uh, detective, like the, the, the department in Germany that's kind of uh, tasked with hunting down the, the last remaining Nazis, like the last alive uh, Nazis are alive, including this kind of old granny who escaped from the police, which is kind of this fun caper of this weird old 90-year-old granny escaping from German Nazi investigate. Uh, but it's it's just kind of really beautifully and deftly done and in the typical Tom Lamont style it is kind of both very moving and very understated at the same time. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's two such good recommendations there. We will make sure we've got the links of those front and centre so everybody can go and have a look. Um, yeah, so time to bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much, Samira and Oliver, for all your fantastic advice. Really, really helpful. Yeah, it's been great to have you on. Thanks so much. And if you'd like some more tips on how to develop a successful freelance career, then sign up to the Freelancing for Journalists newsletter on Substack, where we share tips and personal experience every week. Yes, you can also join our large Facebook community, which, yeah, 7,000 people in there now and more joining every day. Um, and find us on Twitter. We won't be calling it X ever. Um, we're at freelancing for, you know, as long as it's still going by the time this comes out. Um, I'm also on there personally as at Emma Gerno. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And finally, we just want to say a big thank you to our producer, Maddie Drury. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye for now. Goodbye.